always kind of amazing how quickly retreats go. Whether they're two days or a few months. In the middle of them, in the middle of the retreat sometimes it feels like it's forever. And then by the end, it's gone. Often, may not be your experience, but often people say, oh, right at the end, a couple of days, they'll say, oh, it's just getting going. Now, now it's just starting to happen. And they say that at the end of two months also, so. <laughs> because it's true, it's it's a infinite world, the Dharma. An infinite, beautiful, mysterious world. We are an infinite world. And I'd like to speak about a quality of this infinite world. Um, The last quality of the Brahma, Vahara, which is the quality of equanimity. And in some ways, this quality is implicit in everything we've been doing here. Especially the simple mindfulness practice. The quality of finding our our balance in the middle of life. In the middle of each moment. In the middle of whatever experiences came to you and whatever experiences went. And it doesn't mean, sometimes people think equanimity means that we don't have experience. But equanimity, one way, we'll talk about it a few different ways, actually. Here, here's the etymology of equanimity. Comes from the Latin. Means it's a combination of two words. I'm not so good with Latin. Equus and animus. Equus and animus. Equus or equus meaning balance, and animus meaning spirit. So to have equanimity is to have a balanced spirit. And we all know what an imbalanced spirit feels like. We're reaching for something. We're out of balance. We're pushing away something. We're out of balance. But to be in balance is simply to be here with experience. With wonderful experience, with difficult experience, with experience that's neither wonderful nor difficult. Ordinary, simple, neutral. Equanimity is a balance of heart, a wisdom of heart. Actually, just a little bit of an aside, but as part of context, equanimity is um, found in a few different places in Buddhism. 
It's found in the Brahma-vihara, which is quality of heart. It's also found in the seven factors of enlightenment. And it's an important factor when the mind is um, radiant, open, at peace, awake. It's one of the factors that's present in the mind. And as one progresses through a certain archetypal um, uh, um, journey that one can tap into in in, uh, Vipassana practice, uh, which is called the, the stages of insight or the progress of insight, um, part of the progress of insight is a very high, what's called high equanimity, very profound equanimity, where there's almost no movement of mind in any direction. And of course, in the absorptions that can come from deep concentration, the fourth absorption is characterized by this deep equanimity that then even... even um, rapture and happiness and bliss is a little growth, that, that the refinement of mind becomes such that there is what's character, the, the absorption is characterized by this sense of equanimity. And so it's found in many places in the Buddhist teaching and, the, and different forms of it in different stages and phases of awakening. And it's here in the most simple practice of mindfulness. Simply being with the way things are. Learning to be with things, whether we like them, whether we don't like them, whether they're good, whether they're bad. The quality of equanimity is building, is developing, is beginning to uh, grow. The word in Pali, so we've had metta, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, joy, upeka. <clears throat> and it's mostly translated as equanimity, but can also be understood as having a variety of qualities like balance, non-attachment, non-discrimination, a sense of even-mindedness or even-heartedness. And, and a sense of release or ease or letting go. And the Sanskrit word is upeksha. And it's, it's interesting to hear what it means there because upa means over and iksha means to look. And so the image is really one of being on, on top of a mountain to overlook or to look over and to see the big picture. And one of the ways we can reflect on equanimity, especially as we turn our attention from seclusion, from retreat, to going home, is to keep holding a big view, to, to really see the big picture. One of the characteristics of equanimity in daily life is to have a big view of what's happening. Um, sometimes I think of equanimity as 
uh, grandfather or grandmother wisdom. Elder, it's the wisdom of aging, equanimity. That when we meet an elder who's really wise, they may have done no practice, they may have not done anything, but they've lived life in a way where they were open to it and willing to see it, engage it, uh, uh, live it very fully, and they have the wisdom that can accrue simply from life, simply from seeing how life comes and goes, how life has certain cycles, certain phases, certain times. It's like this when you're a child, or it's like that when you're a teenager, or, or this is important when you're a young adult, or this is important when you're 20, and these things happen when you're 30, and when you're 40 it's like this, and when you're 50 it's like that, and by the time they're 60 or 70 or 80, they're just with life how it is. They see, they see from that overview, they see from that big picture. And so it's not that they're not impacted by life or touched by life or moved by life, but they also understand the cycles of life. They understand that 10,000 joys and sorrows are all part of human life. That there's not, um, there's not some perfect human life that one gets to and then that's it. They see, oh no, human life is like this. And then now it's like this. And now it's like this. And so they're not so surprised when things happen that aren't good. They're not so enthralled when things are good. They appreciate what's beautiful. They enjoy the love or the connection. And they also know the the blessing of seeing things as they are, the blessing of equanimity. And so one of the practices I'd like to encourage you to take home with you is the practice of equanimity, of letting what you know impact you, letting what you know about human life begin to saturate your life. When people have big reactions, why, why are we surprised? When people don't do what we want, why are we surprised? <laughs> it's no surprise. People do whatever people do. When life doesn't do what we want it to do, why, are we, why be surprised? Doesn't mean, and when I say this, it doesn't mean be passive. It also means go for what you want, do what you want, achieve whatever you want to try and achieve. But the spirit of that is much more the spirit of right effort. Where said Master Dogen said, and this is really right effort from the understanding of equanimity. He says, um, realization is effort without desire. And one makes one's effort, but one also understands we don't know what will happen. We may want to become a musician, and we spend years, and then that may not happen. 
and that thinks that's the way it is. And then something else happens. Or we may want to get married, and we do. And then it doesn't quite make us happy in the way we imagined it would make us happy. Learning to be with the way things are. Letting the wisdom permeate our life. Seeing the permanence of things, the transitory nature of things, the inconstant nature of human life. It doesn't, it, and uh, I want to be really careful here, because so to say, um, don't be surprised, doesn't mean you're never surprised. It's a very Zen thing to say, what I just said. It means even when we're surprised, there's some balance. There's some understanding. Oh yeah, of course. Of course, it's, I thought it was going to be this way, but of course it could go anyway. Anything can happen. This is from Nanapanika, Nyanapanika. And if you want to read a really nice treatise on the Brahma Viharas, all you have to do is go online, and I think it's, it's Nyanapanika on the four sublime abodes. I think that's how it's said. You could look up the four sublime abodes or the four Brahma Viharas. And, and uh, some of the references that I've made is, is from this treatise that he wrote. He says, looking into life, we notice how it continually moves between contrasts, rise and fall, success and failure, loss and gain, honor and blame. These are actually beginning to describe the eight worldly winds in Buddhism that are natural. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad. Sometimes, and this is very clear as a teacher, sometimes you're praised and sometimes you're blamed. Sometimes we gain, sometimes we lose. This is human life. Equanimity is not forgetting that. Even if we forget it for a while, when it shows itself very dramatically, and we oh yeah, sure, of course. This is, these are the winds of the world that wash over us, over and over again. He says, we feel how our heart responds to all this with happiness and sorrow, delight and despair, disappointment, satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and down and fling us down. No sooner do we find rest than we are in the power of a new wave again. Maybe some of you have felt the waves during the course of this retreat. How can we erect the building of our lives in the midst of this ever-restless ocean of existence if not on the island of equanimity? <laughs> I said this in one of the groups, but there was uh, a poster in the 60s of Swami Satchidananda, and they showed him in tree pose, 
you know. I would demonstrate, but I'd probably fall over. Where you stand on one leg, you know, in gasho position. And he's got, you know, he's a classic um, guru. White beard and long white hair and big smile. And he's standing there on one leg on a surfboard in the ocean. And he says, uh, and, the, and the, it says, um, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Meditate with Swami Satyadana. <laughs> and it's true, we can't stop the waves. Equanimity is that balance of heart and mind that allows us to appreciate the rising and falling, the changing nature of things, the naturalness of the 10,000 joys and sorrows of human life. And you all know already, you all know, Have, has anybody not seen this? Has anybody not seen the changing nature of things? That really there's nothing in the whole world we can hold on to? Not one thing? And sometimes that makes people nervous when I say that. But I just want to remind you, there was never was anything you could hold on to, so you're not actually losing anything, except the idea that we, are, we can hold on to something. And that's a, very, that's a very important little point. We don't actually lose anything in that way. We never held on, we could never hold on to anything. That's the confusion. And the freedom is then to begin to find our balance. And again, the balance doesn't mean that difficulty doesn't happen or that we're immune to things. In some sense, it's the balance to be turned upside down and somehow we know that's okay also. Somehow that's okay. There's a basic trust. A basic trust, even in the the difficulties and tragedies of life that somehow it's okay and maybe we don't know that all the time but especially if we have the blessing of living a long life then that wisdom of aging shows itself that somehow it's all okay Sometimes people are worried that equanimity will make them dry. And there's a confusion that equanimity equals detachment. From the Buddhist perspective, equanimity is neither attachment nor detachment. It's this sense of serenity or balance or equality. Detachment can mimic equanimity. It can it can look like equanimity. It can be kind of a, a false equanimity. And I know personally that I um, I um, grasped at that early in my practice. That I thought oh, I had a kind of meditative detachment. And you can even see from my mudra here. This is not a mudra of you know, openness or accept. This is a mudra, there was an aversion. And there was a way I thought, okay, I'm, I'm detached from that. 
I don't want to be part of that messy human world, really. It's worlds of emotion and people. No, I'm, I'm detached. And it was a kind of false equanimity. And I've seen meditators wield their equanimity, especially in relationship, and really including myself. You know, at the time it would be my girlfriend or something, and I was like, oh, you, you have the, when you're done with those emotions, then I'll relate to you. I'm a little above that all. <laughs> Maybe some of you have felt that from somebody at some time. <clears throat> True equanimity is actually to be really open to the way things are. And the way things are includes our emotions, includes our bodies, includes the messiness of life. And then we begin to find a deep equanimity when we can really open to the reality of the way things are and see we don't have to we don't have to be aversive to it. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to get away from it to be uh, equanimous or to be free. That is in the middle of it all that we find our freedom. There was uh, there's a story about Suzaki Roshi. This is in the 60s, so it's a while ago, but it's, it's an interesting story where it was a couple who was practicing with him, and the fellow was really getting very involved in the practice and becoming very detached in his relationship. And his wife complained to Suzaki Roshi, and, uh, and Suzaki Roshi understood the problem. And so they came on Sashin, uh, a Zen retreat with him, and he gave them the koan, um, how does the Buddha make love? And so people would be going off to sit and do their practice, and they had to go to their room <laughs> to practice. And that and so two or three times a day they would have to make love to see how does the Buddha make love. And, and what happened was that, you know, people are doing these Zen machines which are pretty rigorous, especially at that time. Suzaki Roshi, you know, very serious, don't move, you know, it's not like here, like, oh, adjust your butt, no, don't move. <laughs> And they used to carry a stick, you know, and if you were sleeping, they'd smack you on the back and don't move. <laughs> and and so everybody's getting a little bit grim and tight. And these people are coming into the hall; they're rosier and rosier. Equanimity is not a moving away from life, finding our balance in the midst of life. Sometimes it's called the wisdom of equality, the capacity to see, see clearly the equality of things, the equality of people, the beauty of each person, the uniqueness of each person, the light in each person, or the equality in events as they arise and pass. 
we see it more clearly in the past, right? Like everything just comes and goes. And certain things are really important, but most of what happens, personally, I can't even remember anymore. It's not that important, is it? You know, a few things are really <laughs> significant. But most of, you know, who can remember the tenth year? Right? Except for a few things, maybe. You know, maybe one day at the swimming pool or or a birthday party or something. You know, and depending on how old you are, there's more and more that you can't even remember. And it was all so real at the time, wasn't it? And we keep thinking that there's more coming, and we don't even know that. And so equanimity, true equanimity allows us to live quite fully in the moment. Here's an interesting story, equanimity story, from Suzuki Roshi. And he, he, the, he gave this talk when he was already dying, and he knew he was dying. And he said, my practice of shikantaza, of sitting meditation, changed about two years ago after I almost drowned. I wanted to cross the creek at Tassahara, and I cannot actually swim, but the students were enjoying the water. And just to give you context, if you've never been to Tassahara, it's phenomenally beautiful, set deep in the mountains in California, in the middle of California, just off the coast. And you go there, and um, um, there's a beautiful zendo, and Japanese bath. It was a it was a resort originally when the Zen Center bought it, and so there's a beautiful Japanese bath. And then down the river, if you go down the creek, there's these there's the narrows, and the narrows are where everybody goes to swim naked. So this is what Suzuki Roshi is describing. He said he said so. I the students were enjoying the water so much. I thought I would join them. And there were many beautiful girls over there, so I tried to go over there, forgetting that I couldn't swim. And I almost drowned. But I knew I would not die. I knew I would not drown because there were so many students and someone would help me. So I was not so serious. But the feeling was pretty bad. I was swallowing water. I, so I, I was swallowing water, so I stretched out my arms hoping someone would catch me, but no one helped me, and I decided to go to the bottom to walk, but that was not possible either. I could not reach the bottom, and I could not get to above to the surface. What I saw was the legs of beautiful girls, but I could not take hold of their legs, and I was rather scared. At that time, I realized that we never have good practice until we become quite serious. Because I knew I was not dying, I was not so serious. Because I was not so serious, I had a very difficult time. If I knew I was dying, I would not have struggled anymore. I would have stayed still. Because I thought I had another moment, I did not become serious. Since then, my practice has improved. It was a very interesting experience. I was among beautiful girls, but the beautiful girls could not save me. And, as you know, I am dying. I am dying because of my sickness, not because of water. When I am dying, various demons, as well as beautiful women, will be happy to be with me. 
and I will be happy to be with them. Everything is with us. And without being disturbed, we are happy to be with everything. Usually it is difficult to feel that way because we are involved in gaining idea, expecting improvement in the future. When you are not thinking that you have another moment, then naturally you can accept things as they are. You can see things as they are. You will have perfect wisdom at that time. Teachings of equanimity, the wise or, or quality of heart, or the wisdom of the heart, the part that allows, that brings wisdom to the love, to the compassion, to the joy, that allows us to see that things are just as they are, just just like this moment, just this. And so as you leave, my part of my wish for you is that you can return to the marketplace with bliss-bestowing hands, the phrases in Zen, that one goes, one awakens, not simply for oneself, but to return to the world, to return to the world with the friendliness, and compassion, and the joy, and the equanimity of the awakened heart. To look at your friends, your families, your community, your work, and to see through the heart of wisdom. To see the struggles of human beings, the sufferings of human beings, of life in the human realm. To see the beauty of it the joy of it, the goodness of human beings, but also to see with wisdom, to see its changing ephemeral nature, so that you can hold it all, you can embrace it all with the heart of the Buddha, with the heart of Kuan Yin. Part of going home with a sense of equanimity is letting go of the retreat, letting go of whatever's happened here. Whatever's happened here that's important will stay with you naturally. The understanding will stay with you. The states of heart and mind will change, like the weather. But what you know, you don't have to forget. Or even if you forget it at times, you'll remember again. Part of the wisdom of seeing things as they are means that when you get on the highway, you don't go 20 miles an hour saying, 
driving, driving. (laughs) Just like the heart responds to reality, we want to respond to reality. So the wise thing to do is go, whatever it is, 50 miles an hour, 60 kilometers, whatever it is, and to begin to um, harmonize with life. And when you go home to your families and they ask you how the retreat was, I have a really good thing to say. When people, this is what I tell everybody now. When people ask you how was the retreat, tell them it was good. <laughs> and, and probably don't try to explain what happened here. It's not, it's barely, we can barely understand what happened here, right? I mean, who could have predicted what happened here exactly? Um, most people don't really want to know what happened. <laughs> Mostly they want to know that you're okay and that you haven't gone off with some strange cult. You know, they care about you. And so you can just, if you say good, then they relax and you can get on with it. If somebody really wants to know, they'll actually ask you more than once. Or if somebody's had some experience of this kind of practice, then it might be fine to talk to them. But in general these days, I suggest to Pete, you don't say the most important things that happen for you. That they're still living within you. And that if you can allow them to live within you a little more instead of um, talking about them too soon, they'll continue to metabolize. They'll continue to bear fruit. And so I tend not to talk about my retreat much at all for a while after I go home. Maybe I'll talk to my wife a little bit, she'll talk to me, but there's also, we'll also just wait a little bit to see how it kind of keeps going or shakes out. Part of the wisdom of seeing the way things are is is beginning to recognize now that you're more sensitive than you know. This is really common in retreat. You know, we're in this rarefied air. You know, we're up at 15,000 feet here at Gaia House. And then, you know, you go down to the to the village or into the world and all of a sudden it seems like it's all kind of gross. And it's because of the, the, um, the purification process of meditation. No matter what's happened to you, you're more sensitive than you know. It doesn't matter what happened on the retreat. The, the Dharma has been doing you, whether you recognize it or not. And so part of going home means to um, be respectful to that. Take some time to be quiet, even if you don't formally meditate. Take some time to be in nature as you make the transition. Don't answer all your email and all your phone messages in the first hour that you get home. You may feel like you have a tremendous amount of energy, and you will have a lot of energy, don't, it can spike very easily. It's more skillful to, you know, do a little and then pause for a while, relax for a while, sit for a while, take a bath for a while, whatever, whatever gladdens your heart. And then maybe do a little more. And don't, another 
suggestion that I offer is if you notice that you, uh, you go to work tomorrow or today and all of a sudden you find a big contraction, don't be too judgmental of yourself. You didn't lose everything. It's just a big contraction now. Breathe with it. Be kind to yourself. Apply the principles of Dharma. They work. And they don't work quite in the same... Um, um, they often won't work quite so... Um, I want to say quickly as can happen here because we're in such rarefied air. But they still work. Kindness works wherever you are. Patience works wherever you are. Seeing that, oh, I'm suffering, is the truth. It works. Seeing that there's beauty and taking time to appreciate it works. Wherever you are. And, and, and actually um, recognizing the principles of Dharma will strengthen your understanding that our whole life is practice. It's not, this is not practice. This is just part of practice. Practice is much bigger than retreat. Practice is much bigger than any form. Practice is much bigger than any tradition. Your whole life is practice. It's just the moments of our life to wake up. I'd like to make a little, let me see if there's anything else about going home. Two other things. A daily sitting practice is invaluable. If you don't have one, try it. Try it using skillfully um, increments of time that will actually work for you. Make a resolve. Say, I'm going to sit 10 minutes a day or half an hour a day or an hour a day. But make it amount, um, an amount of time that's doable and then make it the most important thing in your life for one month. That It doesn't matter if you lose your job. You're going to do that 20 minutes of sitting. doesn't matter. What I'm, be, and I say it this way because if there's not some sense of some vega, urgency, or really what I think of, here's how I really think about it, is you have to be ruthless. Because otherwise, the world will eat up your time. It will. People, jobs, newspapers, television, computers, it'll all take your time unless you can really draw that line and say, I'm going to do this. And it takes a certain kind of discipline, and it's important to practice being disciplined in order to build the muscle of discipline. Which is why I say make it a doable amount of time at first. Even if it's ten minutes, but you do it every day for one month, you will find the benefit of that kind of daily practice. And then you could try doing it for twenty minutes. Or if you do it for thirty minutes for a month, you will, you will find the benefit of that kind of practice. And then the second piece is about Sangha. 
finding local sangha where you live somewhere where you can get to a sitting group once a week start a peer sitting group if there's nobody near you you might be able, I don't know, in Spirit Rock people contact Spirit Rock and say I live in this postal code and can I get the addresses of people in this postal code because I want to start a peer sitting group, I want to let people know and then having and then setting a, a weekly sitting when I'm home I sit every week with my sitting group it's great whether I want to go or not doesn't matter it's one of the benefits of being a teacher it's not up to me I'm the teacher I have to go you know sometimes I want to go sometimes I don't it's always beneficial we don't do it alone come back to Gaia House come back and do retreats periodically my, my guideline for myself is always have one retreat on the book on the calendar it might be a year away but I've got it on the calendar I know that I'm going to go on retreat next February it continues to orient my life from my heart's inmost desire. So, a few minutes for questions before we end. Anything about the retreat, the talk, your practice? Anything left over? Sometimes when we're not present, it can also feel endless, right? But there's a, there's a way the time that when we're really present, it's almost like it's timeless. And we all know time is a convention, something that's made up. A really good convention, very helpful. Helps me know what time to stop the talk, so that I can go catch the plane but at a certain depth of experience there's just no time Yeah. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is um, 
for the monastic community, it's a it's a ritualized practice of acknowledging our mistakes or misdeeds, um, and then offering forgiveness to one another and to ourselves. And it's a beautiful practice. And it's written about, if you read Sharon Salzberg's, Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, there's a piece on forgiveness. Jack Cornfield has a, a little book on the art of forgiveness. Um, and, and often method practice will be preceded by a little forgiveness practice. And the, the general gist of it is that we um, reflect on people who've hurt us. We f- reflect on people we've hurt. We reflect on how we've hurt ourselves. And then we offer forgiveness for the people, the ways in which people have hurt us, to whatever degree possible. In other words, you don't force the forgiveness. You can't. Some people you may be able to forgive. Some people you might not be able to, but you just hold the, the intention to maybe forgive someday. You really have to stay with what's true for you around this. You can't Pollyanna it. You can't, you know, we can't fake forgiveness. What we can do is understand that forgiveness really means freedom for us. And that's why forgiveness is highly valued in Buddhism, because it means we're not carrying the animosity, the anger, the hatred anymore. That we see, we still not, we, we may never condone the action, but we let go of condemning the actor. And this is an important part of, of Buddhist understanding. I mentioned this in one of the groups, but I don't think I've said it here. Buddhism is the only religion I know that has a serial killer as a hero. <laughs> and he's, it's, it's, it's almost not even a question when he, after he tries to kill the Buddha, and he can't, but he's killed 99 people, he becomes a disciple, and he actually becomes an awakened disciple. And it's understood that his value is not based on his action. His value is not based on, our value is not based on our action. Our karma is based on our action. And that's different. He still had to, he still had a, a certain price to pay for his action. But the Buddha accepted him fully. And so we forgive others as best we can. We ask for forgiveness for what we, and this is not about guilt, it's about remorse. And there's a difference. Guilt condemns us. Remorse acknowledges that we did something that was unskillful, but it doesn't condemn us. And then we also acknowledge the ways in which we may have hurt or harmed ourselves through thought or word or deed. And then we ask for The impact of it. Okay. Somebody asked a question. It's one of the notes that I didn't get back to about the link between meditation, spiritual practice, and depression. How do you work spiritually with depression? It it really depends. It really depends. Sometimes it's uh, very helpful, 
and sometimes it's what's called contraindicated. Um, um, it depends on each person, the depression, how they've worked with it. Sometimes meditation can be really helpful. Sometimes it can exacerbate um, the, the depression because especially a form like this can be too isolating. So um, it's good to work with the teacher around it very specifically to see what's helpful. Maybe uh, uh, mindfulness practice is not the right thing. Maybe Brahma Vihara practice in, in, in its intensive form is much more, can be much more helpful. Loving kindness practice can be much more helpful. So it's, it's really unique. Um, it really depends on each person in that way. And a good book um, that I found is called Full Catastrophe Living. And it talks about how to use meditation with depression and anxiety. Full Catastrophe Living. Anything else? Where is that part it's, a, it's in a book. I don't know if I can remember the name of the book. It's not Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It's a more recent book edited by Ed Brown on Suzuki Roshi. Um, yeah, I don't remember the name, but it's a nice book of his talk. So Ed Brown is the editor, and that'll that'll get you there. Not always so. Pardon? Not always so. Thank you. Not always so. Yeah. And I, I imagine it might be in the library here. Yeah. Good. Thank you. I'm sorry, Mister. But to, and to really start to, it's really helpful um, 
to actually become familiar with the emotional landscape to really get a sense of the terrain just like we know these are hills and these are mountains and these are peaks and there's a valley we want to know what's the terrain of our heart and then we can start to recognize it quite quickly there's a capacity to be able to just sit and and get oh this is sadness this is uh, a sense of loneliness or this is a kind of fear you know, and, it, and they can be very gross, but they can also be very subtle. And then, and then the practice is not really to do anything particular, except to allow them to be like the weather and come through and display themselves, feel their impact, be contactful with them. But the equanimity is right in actually being present with them. And then, and that kind of equanimity, that wisdom of being with motions, allows them to continue. The word emotion, emotion. They have motion if we let them come and let them go. And yeah, it's a very important part of our our uh, terrain. A couple of things you said reminded me of a quotation of Stephen Baxter in a Zenitry quite a long time ago. Um, and it was um, when you're looking into the eyes of another, you're looking into infinity. Mm-hmm. And it's something I've thought about a lot. And it was, I sort of took it out of context. I have no idea who, it, who said it or what, what it's about. I wonder if you, you might know who said it or similar <laughs> writing. Uh-huh. Well, right now I know that you said it. <laughs> and it sounds like Stephen Batchelor said it. Okay, okay. So there's two good ones right there, two references. Um, it does have a certain kind of... Um, uh, I don't know who who said it. It has a kind of Rumi-esque, like Rumi or Kabir, a little bit of that Sufi flavor um, to it. Um, the Buddha didn't say it. That, that I'm pretty sure of. Um, that wasn't quite his style. Um, <laughs> it could have been. Yeah, it could have been a Zen master. Nobody, I'm, I'm not recognizing it in that way. But it could have been a Zen master who read Kabir also. So, it's, you know, John Coltrane, the musician, used to say it's, it's a very big uh, uh, lake that we all dip into, you know, that we all dip into. And so, you know, I, it's sometimes nice to know who said it or think we know who said it. Um, well, I think it's something quite similar, that we are, it's easy to sort of label. Right. Right. Maybe I said it. (laughs) (laughs) What 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 strikes me about what you're saying is that we recognize it no matter who said it. When we hear it, we recognize the truth. And that that's that's what I'm hearing struck you, whether it was Stephen or me or you or Rumi or the Zen master. Hmm. So is that enough for this weekend?
think I'll, I'll uh, end with a quote from uh, Ajahn Sumedho. He says, enlightenment is practical. Enlightenment is practical. It's something each of us can realize. We are all capable of moving into a position of being awake. And when we're awake and balanced and wise, we can love. That is the maturing of the human being. When there is wisdom, one naturally relates to others with love. Love is wisdom's natural radiance. So I want to say thank you for this retreat. Thank you for all being here so that I could be here too. <laughs> and of course, my thanks to Gaia House. And, uh, and just to reflect for a moment about all the people who've created this place of practice. Oh, I know, I have to say one more thing. This is, this is Teacher Duca, but I'm going to just... Teacher Duca, as you have to say one more thing. Um, there's a fifth Brahma Vihara. <laughs> there is. It's not in the Buddhist text, though. I'm making it up. But I believe that at the next... Every 500 years, there's a convocation of Buddhist, you know, elders. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to propose that there's a fifth Brahma Vihara. And the fifth Brahma Vihara is gratitude. And it's a beautiful quality of mind, of heart. And, um, uh, and I feel that. And I, I like to express it and I like to acknowledge the gratitude. And part of the gratitude is the gratitude for a place like this. Because they're so rare in the world. Um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to go to retreat centers. And it's so wonderful that we can come and do this kind of work, this kind of practice, to really look deeply at the human experience. And that, and, and as part of the gratitude, I believe it's really helpful to really reflect on all the people who've made this possible. You know, to reflect a little bit about whoever supported you, took care of your kitty, you know, took your mail in, or is taking your mail in, or helped in some way financially, or gave you a ride, or whatever it was, or just getting off the time from work to be here. And then the people, all the people who've been part of Gaia House, just to, for a moment to just really, really feel the stream that we're sitting in. Because it's Gaia House, the people who went to Asia and the Whenever they went and came back and had a vision, and they had no idea what they were doing starting these centers. I've seen this so clearly in the West at Spirit Rock, and they had, they had not a clue what they were getting into. And then this whole thing happened. You know, it just happened because it's good, and because it's needed, and because it's, it's beautiful. And then all the people who've given of their time and their energy and their love the managers, the, the cooks, the uh, caretakers, the 
people who've donated yourselves, the people who come and practice, that, that allow this to live. And then if we really want to deepen and feel the stream we're sitting in, then really to feel not just Gaia House of the past 30 or 40 years, but the whole stream of the Buddha Dharma. The whole stream has just been men and women like us. Really, I think it's really important to get just men and women like us who, who wanted to understand, who wanted to wake up, who wanted to see what's true, who've kept the Dharma alive in this form for 2,600 years in China, in Japan, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, in Burma, in India, and now all over the West. Grateful for, for all the beings who've kept the Dharma alive. So let's end with a little gratitude metta. Sit comfortably, whatever way you'd like. Grateful for these practice places, for the stream of Dharma, for the teachings. Grateful to the monastic community who've kept the Dharma alive in that form from the time of the Buddha. Grateful to the Buddha for his passion for awakening, for his dedication to the truth, to the Dharma, and for his realizing the maturation of human possibility. Grateful to the Buddha and to the other beings, Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, who've realized the awakened heart of love and kindness and joy, equanimity. This may be the hardest, but grateful to yourself Grateful to yourself for coming here, even if it's been difficult, for having the courage, the fortitude to stay, even if it's been difficult, and the wish to awaken. Grateful to have that wish. Grateful to have a heart that wants to be free. May it be so. So offering a little loving kindness for yourself. May I be happy. May I be truly happy. May I be safe, protected, Free from inner and outer harm. 
just softly repeating the phrases, letting the kindness, the goodness, the, the well-wish that's inherent in the phrase wash over you, touching your body and being. May I be well. May my body be as healthy as possible at this time. May it support my awakening. And may I accept myself and this body just as it is. Letting go of the judgment, the criticism. Just as I wish to accept each moment, may I accept this body, this precious human body. May I live with ease of well-being. May I find harmony in this world, in this life. May I find the harmony of being with things as they are. May my heart be open. May my heart be filled with loving kindness and compassion. May I awaken in this very body, in this very life. And feeling, sensing the limitless nature of loving-kindness, its boundless nature. Offering your loving-kindness to the people you've been practicing with here, people who are sitting here, including the people who may have left already. May you be happy. May you be truly happy. This is my wish for you. You might bring to your mind's eye or into your heart the image of the various people, the women, the men, that you've been sitting with for this weekend. May you be safe, protected, free from harm. Letting the warm kindness of metta begin to fill this room, touching each person, each being. 
May you be well. May your body support your awakening. May you live with ease, joy, equanimity. For each man in this room, for each woman in this room, for those who are young, for those who are old, for those who are middle-aged, may your hearts be open. May you be filled with loving-kindness and compassion. May you awaken in this very life, in this very body. May you be free. And I'm letting the loving kindness expand, spread out in every direction. To the front, to the back, to the sides above and below, to the creatures, the birds, the insects, the bunnies, on this land and all over the world, creatures of the sea, the air, the earth, the people of Europe, Asia. Antarctica, Africa, South America, North America, everywhere, letting your loving kindness be as wide as the world, letting your heart be as wide as the world, holding the whole world in your heart. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, the suffering of fear, confusion, anger, hatred, war, division, racism, greed, grasping, ignorance. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken, realizing their true nature, their Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. <coughs> <coughs>